Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. We have a fun episode for you guys today. We're going to take a deep dive into an American hero. That's right. This guy is a true legend. And as I researched this, I kept finding that like every single chapter of this guy's life, life was just as epic as the last. And it left you feeling wanting. Yeah, yourself. basically, I was I yeah. was messaging Nikki, and I was like, "This guy is such a badass, and I will never compete to even like a minuscule of his coolness yeah. and just epicness." You're like digging post holes in your backyard, like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, this is yeah I'm great. doing it." <laughs> Meanwhile, no, not even close. All right, before we see. get into that, what have you got for us? Yeah, let's talk about our sponsor, for which you're wearing their T-shirt right now. I, I noticed am. Petrol I Box. Each and every month, petrol I, box. I hardly ever buy clothes for myself. It just doesn't happen. I just, I wear black well, t-shirts. Yeah. And so I've gotten like four or five new t-shirts. I know, because so every month you get a new t-shirt along with other great stuff. And I was just, because my wife's like, why is your closet so full of t-shirts? I was like, well, I get at least one new one every month. Yep. It's awesome. Speaking of new t-shirts, we have, uh, I'll are talk on, about it. I'll talk about are it Are they afterwards. in the store? They are not in the store yet, okay. but they are in the store for Patreon members. Oh. So if you're a Patreon member, you have access to the store right now to go buy the shirts with a 20% discount. Which, oh, really? Yeah. That's yeah. a good deal. You're, you're, you're should, all set. Awesome. And, they're, and they're super limited. Anyway, sorry. This just, is not, yeah. a, this is a Petrobox oh, ad. About, we, can, we can multitask. Yes, we can. We multitask. Can. So Petrobox, as you well know, is a monthly subscription service that's made specifically for the car guy along with really cool automotive t-shirts. You get tools, a lot of detailing supplies, garage gear, stickers, publications. The last like three different boxes had different magazines in them. It was very cool. All of that is gathered together and put right to your doorstep every single month. There are two different levels to choose from. You have the Petrobox Basic, which is 20 bucks a month. Then you have the Petrobox Premium for $39.95 a month. Check out my petrolbox.com. That's where you find these guys and use the code overcrest to get $6 off your first month. Dads are notoriously hard to get Christmas gifts for they because are. they have everything because they've been getting gifts from their kids for the last 20 or 30 years or whatever the case may be, or, mm -hmm. or maybe more if they're married, you know, it's just tons and tons of gifts all the time. Uh, this is a good gift. It's a very good gift. It's good. So head over there and support our sponsors. All right, Chris, let's get right into the story here. Okay. Now he was born on February 13th, 1923 in Myra, West Virginia. And he was, by most accounts, an average student, nothing special, but displayed a knack for understanding machines. So his father, Albert, he owned a small natural gas drilling business. They weren't wealthy by any means. It was, think of like a, a small contracting, family contracting company sure. that you might see today. And what do you see with these contracting companies? Usually they have a lot of machinery. They might have a few trucks that all work there. Well, it turns out our young boy here had an aptitude for not only working on these machines, he was absolutely enamored with them. He was helping his dad repair and Back troubleshooting. Then, everything needed maintenance. Right. right. It's, it's not like it is today where things went. I mean, we all say the old stuff's super reliable. It's simple, whatever. But it needed a ton of maintenance because tolerances were all really loose. True. I didn't then. think about it that yeah, way. So, but uh, you're right. He's constantly maintaining this stuff and yep. growing up around it. Yeah, you're right. And so he, think of natural gas drilling business. I don't know much about it, but there was generators, pumps, pressure regulators, all of these devices and machines that this boy just found fascinating. And so, as you said, he went along with his dad helping to maintain and repair them, and he got became very good at troubleshooting all these complicated systems. It just became natural to him. Sure. And the same was due 
to the trucks that, as you say, this was what, 1935, about there. Yeah. He had to maintain all these trucks that they're using on these rigs. And by the time he was a teenager, Chris, he could disassemble these Chevy truck engines, overhaul them, and reassemble them with ease. Now, granted, they're not as... Yeah, they're not quite as complicated as today's today's engine. But here's the thing. There wasn't like you could go to the, you couldn't go over to O'Reilly and buy a manual for a whatever. Not only that, he didn't go to some technical college to learn how to do it either. This is pretty impressive. It's good stuff. Yeah. There was a lot of, you know, my, uh, my family. This is the 30s too. So we're in depression area. This is like. It is midst of the depression. The Dust Bowl is kind of in in this period of time. And in the Midwest, a lot of, um, a lot of families, like my family grew up in Kansas, in Belle Plaine, Kansas, which is. It's like 45 minutes southwest of Wichita. Okay. It's just... Where like, I'm so bad at geography, Eastern, that's close to West Virginia. We is it drove, not? We drove next to it when we were on our oh, trip. Oh, did we really? We drove right... That's where we were going to look at that Mustang. Remember when we were going to look at that Mustang that was in the, the Mach 1 that was sitting in the barn? Yeah. That was in Belle Plaine. So that's where my family comes from. Okay. Is that But I'm, I'm talking our story of our guy here. He grew up in West Virginia. Is that close? I'm I'm just making the point of the... No, it's not. Okay. What I'm that's talking what about, I'm showing is I'm really good at geography. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm saying is that the the uh, the self-reliant nature of, of the men and women of this time yeah. naturally leads them to be curious, to be able to want to fix things because of the necessity of having to do it. They had to do it. They could not afford to pay someone else to do it. And it was probably more difficult. There was less people that were being paid to do it. It's just a very, very self-reliant time that this man came from. Right. And moving right along, he graduated high school in June of 1941, just six months before America entered World War II. At the tender age of 18 then, before the draft was ever enacted, he enlisted in the Army Air Corps. Now, Didn't wait to be drafted, just in. He, in the recruitment's office, let's go. Exactly. It probably was A, an opportunity for him, but B, later does talk about how this, this was an American man, right? This was a patriotic guy. So with his mechanical aptitude and all that experience we talked about of fixing things, going through things out on his dad's uh, business or rig, I don't, what would you call a drilling company? Uh, I would call it a drilling company. Okay, well, that's where the experience <laughs> came from. Okay. So he had this mechanical aptitude, and he served as a crew chief, which is basically a maintenance guy for the AT-111, which is an aircraft. Oh, I was thinking that was a tank. Or it how about like the AT-AT is like the Star, Wars, Star Wars walkers, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, no, no. So I, I was an inquiring mind, of course, and had to look this up. The AT-11 Kansans, not to be pronounced Kansas, where they were actually made, for some reason they're called the Kansans, it's a militarized version of the Beechcraft Model 18, which is a much older, uh, lightweight, twin-engine cargo plane. Think okay. of like a small cargo plane. It seats like 11 people if you convert it to a personnel carrier. Yep. With twin engines, one on each wing, kind of your standard small yeah, I can picture. cargo I know you're plane. Right. So they used these... For training military pilots, basically. You would train on these, and then you could move up to, like, the bombers. Because they're super basic They're aircraft. basic. I think they're easy to fly. Sure. But Com- still have inspire confidence. There you go. Probably. Yeah. So, while our our uh, protagonist here, he, he had a talent for working on the planes. But can you imagine? You're in there. You're wrenching. You're, you're doing your thing. You're good at it. Yeah. But then you see these guys get to fly. <laughs> Right? So it wasn't long before he wanted to become a pilot. Now, much later, in 2016, actually, he was asked on Twitter what made him want to become a pilot. 
The reply was infused with cheeky levity. Quote, I was in maintenance. I saw pilots had beautiful girls on their arms and didn't have dirty hands. So I applied. <laughs> I like it. You I know, like- my grandpa always told me, I, rem- I don't know why I remember this. Okay. But he would say, um, it was when I was first starting to date girls. Okay. Before I left, he would say, are your fingernails clean? He was always like, and I think that was just his way of saying, "Are are you are you dialed in? Are you know, are your fingernails yeah. clean?" So I just always be looking at he, your. He wasn't thinking of specific activities. I, I <laughs> he didn't say, "Are your fingernails short?" He just said, "Are they clean?" Okay, we'll leave it at yeah. that. All right. Ironically, the first time this guy went up in a plane, he was quote sick to his stomach. Well, as you would be. I mean, back then, flying wasn't that common, I don't know. <laughs> no, it wasn't. His own lightheartedness aside, there was good reason for him to pursue a career as a pilot. Before the U.S. entered World War II, the Air Corps required pilots in training to have two years of college and, tw- and be at least 20 years of age, okay? However, in 1942, with the war effort in full swing... I'm going to guess they dialed that back a little bit. They <laughs> did, yeah. They wanted to train more pilots more quickly. The flying sergeant program was unveiled, and the regulation was changed. Flying sergeant candidates needed to be only 18 years of age and of a high school diploma. Check and check. Yeah. Our guy's in, right? So, though he hadn't really been impressed with his first ride in an airplane where he felt a little queasy, he recognized the opportunity of this flying sergeant program, right? Coming from West Virginia, working class family, he goes, I could be a pilot though. Right. So, it wasn't long before our protagonist completed his pilot training and earned his wings on March 10th, 1943. He joined the 363rd Fighter Squadron later that month and began training in fighter tactics in the Bell P-39 Era Cobra as part of the 357th Fighter Group. What plane is this? Can you tell me anything about this plane? I looked it up, and I did not recognize it. It doesn't look great. It didn't actually... So as we get into the story, this was before the P-51 came into. So this, I don't know... Well, the P-51 did come in late into the war. It was a late... Latecomer. You're right. It was a little later, but I didn't. I don't recognize this okay. as like building models of it as a kid. I don't think it was a very popular plane, but the P-39 Era Cobra, which okay. is kind of a cool name. Yeah, I dig the name. So many of the new pilots had a tough time transitioning to the P-39, but not him, recalled his squadron mate. Quote, he became the yardstick by which we could measure the rest as they joined us, several each month. That man could fly. Right from the start, he was pretty impressive. How big is your head getting when you realize, like, I stumbled into this flying thing, and now my sergeant or my instructor is telling me, like, you are the yardstick. For Imagine, so you've seen Top Gun, right? Yeah. yeah. The egos in those places have got to be out off the charts, man. And this is what makes our story of this guy so much more impressive is the humility that he portrays later in life. Sure. As we'll get to. Because, yes, I absolutely <laughs> would be the most just arrogant asshole you've ever met. You'd be the guy playing the piano in the bar singing. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, he oh, he does it much better than that. I'll get there. <laughs> Believe you me, he does it so much smoother than that. Okay. So, besides setting himself apart as a truly talented pilot, something else noteworthy happened during his life with the 357th Fighter Group. You see, the 357th moved to Oroville, California. When they arrived, he and another flight officer were charged with arranging some entertainment. 
all right, we just moved our bases or whatever it was, or we moved our squadron to a new base. We're new in the area. Let's maybe like have a little social get together to, to kick it off and get everyone in good spirits. Pump up morale, Chris, right? Right. And so they went to the local USO office and asked the very attractive young social director named Glennis Dickhouse. <laughs> now, Chris, stop. I understand her name is Dick House. She was eager to get married to get rid of that, I'm sure. Anyways, he asked Glennis if she could organize a dance for a squadron that evening. He would later recall that, quote, she looked so annoyed, I thought she might throw me straight out of the bar. But he persisted, telling Glennis, you know what? There's 30 of us, but you only need to invite 29 girls instead of 30 because I want to take you. Ooh, this man, yeah. <laughs> well... The event was a success, and by the time the group left for Casper, Wyoming in September, she had given him her picture, and they promised to write. I think that must have been the thing back then, when you give the military guy your little picture. You're here, take yeah, this picture with you. All right. Keep it in, the, keep All it right. in their pocket. We can write. Yeah, a little letter on their back. Stay safe. Out. So Casper, Wyoming would be the last stop before the group left for the war in Europe. And he had actually arranged to spend a week in Reno with Glennis before they left. Instead... He ended up in the base hospital at Casper. His P-39 caught fire during a training flight as what, and he was forced to bail out. In doing so, he fractured his back. Now, when we talk about bailing out of these planes, this you, isn't, there's this no isn't, ejector yeah, seat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, this is like open the thing, rip open canopy. the canopy back, crawl out and yeah. jump out of the crawl freaking plane. And you like hope you don't hit your wing on the way out oh my god i just can only imagine how so he's like training he's off he's about to go out to europe you know he's probably anxious and excited and oh all of a sudden his era cobra which you can see why they don't use the era cobra anymore apparently that plane <laughs> is crap he has to bail out fractures his back and the next month he's still shipped out he goes anyway he goes anyways once in england the 8th Air Force Division was the first to employ the new P-51 Mustang. Fast, sleek, and highly maneuverable, the P-51 went from the drawing board to the flight line in just 116 days. Wow. So from drawing board to being out there deployed, what is that? Five months? Four months? 116 days is like three and a half months. Wow. The Mustang included an indispensable element that would ultimately turn the tide of the war in Europe. Two 108-gallon external fuel tanks, one mounted be each, beneath each wing, gave the nimble fighter a range that far exceeded any of its competitors. So not only was it fast, it was nimble, and it was capable, it could go far. And, as is customary, our hero named his plane the Glamorous Glen. After his now fiance, <laughs> those letters are progressive. I wonder what came first. Did he ask her to marry him before oh, or after he named, he his, named the plane? Like, right? Hey, honey, check out this new plane. I named it after he you. Will you marry her, me? You know, right? Where like they were painting the name on it. Yeah. Nope, that didn't happen. Oh well. Anyways, he entered combat in February of and downed his first enemy aircraft, a Messerschmitt Me 109, on March 4th. He got it. He got his first kill. The very next day, on wonder, March I, I 5th... Wonder what, I wonder what that must feel like. I, I think looking back and being in a time where we're in a more peace setting and we haven't been to war with an enemy, we feel a little bit more somber about that. Like, I just killed a man. I just downed 
Yeah, that was a that. Huge. But in the moment, I mean, it's it's us. It's like you're more destroying them. a tool of the enemy versus a it's, human. That's being. why they call it a dogfight, right? Right. Um, so that was March fourth. He got his first enemy kill on March fifth. He went out again and was shot down while trying to make a head-on pass at a group of Fokker Wolf 190s during a raid on Bordeaux, France. So, do you remember the scene in the Pearl Harbor movie where, like, there's a whole fleet of fighters and you're just going straight at them, mm-hmm. saying, screw it, I'm going to go straight at them. Like, you're basically playing a game of chicken with war machines. Hey. That's what this guy was doing, and unfortunately, he was downed. He bailed out over occupied territory. Again. Well, bailed out, bailed out yeah. but this time it wasn't in Casper, Wyoming. Yeah, which is a little safer. Yeah, uh, so bailed out over occupied territory, which was risky business to say the least. Even if he made it to the ground in one piece, which is a big if, he knew his chances of avoiding German patrols were slim. He waited until the last possible moment to open his parachute. Can you imagine the decision of falling basically to death if you don't do anything, but also knowing if I open my chute too soon, they are more likely to spot me and capture me. I'm going me. to a concentration camp. Right. Basically. Yeah. So at the last minute, he pulls his chute and scans the ground quickly, trying to figure out where he should land, where safe, where am I not going to be captured. German troops seemed to be everywhere, he later wrote. Literally, as he's dropping down to the ground, he can see them scurrying about. After sweating the entire ride down, he found himself in a forested area. He quickly rolled up his parachute and took cover in the heavy brush. Basically, you gather up your shit, try not to be seen, and dive down into the bush. Into the dirt, yeah. Yep, exactly. He waited until basically the next morning, and as a French woodcutter made his way through the area, he jumped from the bushes pistol in hand. His objective now was to avoid being captured at all costs, and make his way into neutral Spanish territory. He needed the help of the French underground if he was to succeed. The startled woodcutter spoke no English, but understood from the U.S. uniform that the young pilot needed assistance. Which, Chris, can you imagine being in a war-torn country, doing your best to survive? Maybe you have a family to try to provide for something, so you're still you're going out, in the middle of fighting to harvest wood, because this is the only thing you can do, right? Coming across an allied soldier who basically jumps out, startles you, and is at gunpoint. You can't communicate. You don't speak a word of the same language, but you recognize this is a U.S. soldier. He's fighting for us, and I need to help him. And if I get caught with him, I'm dead. under the threat of your own life. Yeah. It's just, I can't comprehend those feelings. It just... It really makes all the things that we complain about so and minuscule. fight about with each other yeah. just completely insignificant in comparison. Yeah. Uh, regardless, soon the young pilot was under the watchful eye of the Maquis, which was the French resistance movement. He spent the next few weeks traveling with the Maquis through the French countryside, which sounds pleasant, aside from the fact that it was in the middle of a war zone. He showed them how to set various timings for fuses on plastic explosives, something he had done years before with his dad in the natural gas fields. Because, of course, Chris, this guy is not only an amazing (laughs) pilot and hero, he is apparently 
MacGyver <laughs> as well, right? What? He's teaching the resistant fighters how, how to blow stuff up. How to blow stuff up. <laughs> yeah, no, we look at this. You let it go to the fuse. It's a boom. Lay boom. Chris, lay boom. Uh, and he's like, just like pointing at stuff and mining things. Oh, yeah, things. exactly. Yeah. I just, I was like, when I read this, I was like, wait, what? He's MacGyver? <laughs> imagine, imagine the pantomiming of don't do this. <laughs> no, 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 no good. <laughs> Then on March 23rd, 1944, our protagonist and three other downed American flyers were driven to the edge of the Pyrenees mountain range, which forms a barrier between France and Spain. Our pilot and a B-24 navigator... Now, to be clear, there's no way for them to contact American troops, basically. Right? As I don't, far as I read, I don't think so. I mean, what his, are you He knew to do? his best shot was... Actually, he didn't even know the time. He just saw a French guy, and he's like, French, yes, okay, I can work with you. Right, because I've been French laying in the weeds for... 16 hours. Yeah. The French guy's like, look, we. I know maybe my neighbor knows resistance fighters or something. I'm just right. going to get them off to him. And that's how we basically figured it. Right. I'm just saying there's not like he called up 911 and said, hey. Hey, like, hey guys. Yeah. Uh, or there was no sat phone for right. him to call exactly. up or anything like that. So No. And yeah, the I'm trying to think if the French resistance fighters even had radios to try to contact. I don't think they would you want to. You, you couldn't use radios because radios back It's then, all intercepted. Yeah, you couldn't. It wasn't like encrypted radio. <laughs> exactly. Like it is They'd today. be like, oh, yeah, the, the Maquis, apparently they got a few pilots. That's why they, what was the tool that Germans had? The the, the Enigma machine. The Enigma. That's why the Enigma machine existed is because they needed the to transfer that information. Exactly. But the information could be intercepted, so it had to be That encrypted. is a whole different episode that yeah. I should do. Yeah, we should do that. The That'd Enigma machine. All right. So our pilot and a B-24 navigator would make the journey together after four days of steady climbing through knee deep snow and a relentless freezing wind the men were absolutely exhausted as you'd imagine they found keep in mind too okay four days hiking in the worst mountain weather you've ever found you only have the food on your back and it's not like you get a supply drop you're right. on your own and you're also like in enemy territory still in unfamiliar constant alert Yes, exhausted to say the least. They found a deserted cabin, however, and decided to rest a while. The other airman hung his wet socks on a bush outside the cabin to dry. He and the airman were too tired to realize what a mistake that was. The men were awakened by the sound of bullets hitting the cabin. A German patrol had passed by, seen the socks, and just started shooting. You see white socks in a bush next to an abandoned cabin. And you just start shooting at it. They just start shooting. Eh, can't be one of I guys. The two men dove out a back window. The young hero threw his injured comrade in a snow-covered log slide and jumped on with him. I, I couldn't find any more description about exactly what this was. I don't know if it was a logging apparatus. So like no, this, this is what they use to, to cart logs. So you take the log slide out. Do you want to go collect wood? You okay. chop down something, pile okay. it up. Log so it's basically slide, a little, I like, gotcha. Like a little, it's, uh, it's a toboggan. A toboggan, but with, with skis. Okay, you I know, gotcha. The, so his, his guy, his comrade here, his partner, the B-24 navigator, B-29 navigator, whatever it was, he, B-24, he's injured and obviously exhausted, left his damn socks outside, and he throws him out the back window on a toboggan. He jumps out after him. The men ended up in a deep creek several thousand feet below the cabin. That's a hell of a ride. That is one hell of a ride. <laughs> Think of the longest. Do you ski or snowboard or ever did? Think of the longest ski run Jay, you've ever been on. I've been sledding. <laughs> okay, better analogy. Think yeah. of sledding. Yeah. But I'm thinking I've been out to like Wyoming skiing and stuff. And, like, even the longest runs there are not several thousand feet of elevation. No, that's crazy. 
On the bank of the river, he tended to the other airman's wound. Without the hero's quick action, he would have certainly perished. He then proceeded to drag his injured comrade all the way back up the mountain. After that, wouldn't you be like, fuck this guy? I don't, I don't know what you would do. When you're at the, the, the bare nub of humanity like that, right. it is almost impossible to know what's, how someone will react or what they will do. Strong people can crumble. Weak people can stand up. There's so many different variables that are deep within us as people that come out when things yeah. really get. I, I made a note here that, like, joking aside, there's obviously this unyielding bond between, like, your brothers in arms during it's, war. It's family. It is. It truly is. It's just, and I, that, we can't and that comes appreciate from, it. It comes from knowing that you rely on the other person. Everybody knows that the guy next to you is 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 it's who you rely on unequivocally. And you want to make sure that that exists for you so you also feel that way about the other guy and they all kind of feel that way about each it's other. It's literally the golden rule, but under much dire circumstances. Correct, I think. So cold, wet, hungry, and with every muscle of his body aching, he inched along. He did not stop for fear of falling asleep and then letting go of his injured friend. Finally, and practically without realizing it, this is all from uh, later quotes, so when I'm saying hardly realizing it. I'm not assuming. He basically said, without even realizing it, I reached the summit. Far below, he could see a road. He pushed the unconscious airman down the slope and followed behind. The guy's passed out by this time. He basically says, we're at the top. I can see a road way down there. Let's go sledding again without the sled, obviously. They slide down. Unable to carry his comrade any further, he left his injured airman at the side of the road where he knew border patrol would find him as he continued south. The guy's passed out. There's nothing he can He's do. nothing more he can do. Um, I didn't follow up on what happened to this guy, but the assumption was that these border patrol came frequently, right. and now he's in friendly neutral territory, so it should be good. Yeah, so the patrol's just making sure that the Germans aren't coming over the mountain, yes, essentially. exactly. Now in Spain, he turned himself into the authorities and was transported back to England. Now, here's something interesting I didn't really realize, Chris. After being shot down behind enemy lines, a pilot wasn't required to return to active combat. And it's more than that. They basically weren't allowed to return to Just active combat. Just the stress combat. of it is... They're like, look, you have done enough. Basically, you've, you've made your sacrifice, and we're going to not, there a, not reward was you. Was there a caveat in the documents when you sign up that says, hey, if you have to climb over a mountain, get shot at? <laughs> basically, like, go down a mountain, good. go you're back good. up Don't the worry, mountain, don't go, worry. Yeah. yeah, no, but... Do it, you think they grabbed their socks on their way out? <laughs> <laughs> I do not think so, since they were shooting at the socks, yeah. and he went the other way. Yeah, I was thinking they didn't have any socks. Imagine their feet. Oh, my God. Well, imagine, his, imagine his feet in his boots with no socks. Blistered. Oh, awful. And freezing. Yeah. All right, so it was more that they, they weren't, required they basically weren't allowed to return to combat and that makes sense our hero however shunned that notion and carried his appeal all the way up to the chain of supreme allied commander general dwight d eisenhower at the time he then resumed combat operations in august flying another p-51 glamorous glenn the second it's probably it was hey if you really (laughs) want to do this Okay, you can you can do it. We we yeah, we'll let you go. Can you imagine like he says to his superior officer, "Hey, I want to go." They're like, "No, that's not how it works." 
okay, tell your superior officer. Tell your your superior officer. Tell your superior officer finally to the general. This, this is exactly how it works when I call the internet company. You can't help me. <laughs> I need to talk to your supervisor. Surely someone around can make this call. Yeah. If it's not you, I need to talk to the person that the can. The difference is you're not making a sacrifice to the nation by yeah, that's doing a little that. different. A little yeah. different. But regardless, finally, he gets the okay from the general. And he resumed combat. And I think you missed the detail there. So he obviously his P-51 got shot down before. Yeah. And he, so he got another one. So he got another it. one. Named it Glamorous Glenn the Second. Yeah, why not? He went on to rack up a final total of 12.5 aerial victories. Which, for the life of me, Chris, there is no explanation why there's a half in there. Because I someone dug, else shot at him. Do you think that's what it's it got, is? Well, it's just like in football. You have half a sack. It's because you and another guy got the quarterback. he got shot down so that, like negates a half because you crash his half <laughs> i hate to say it but it's like point values right no, i think it's because there was another one in the dog fight oh and so you and your buddy both got attributed yeah, for the yeah, one yeah. guy going yeah that you, makes a lot more otherwise sense. it would be like well i shot him down well you hit yeah, him in I the get wing the little sticker of the plane on my plane yeah but i hit him in the in the in the airliner there in the back yeah, yeah. No, no 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 yeah it's that makes a lot more sense than my assumption <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so five of these kills were all on a single day. Apparently, wow. I, I think I read before you need five to be considered an ace. And so they basically said he became an ace in a day. On the 12th of October, four more. And then, uh, or the four were on October 22nd. So those fives were on the 12th of October and then four more on November 27th. Of his November 27th experience, he recalled, quote, that day was a fighter pilot's dream. In the midst of a wild sky, I knew that dogfighting was what I was born to do. I just got goosebumps. That's crazy. I just can't it imagine. Is. I mean, it's very rare to someone find exactly what they are meant to do. But imagine having that epiphany in the heat of battle. He was ultimately promoted to captain and married Glennis as soon as he returned stateside in February 1945. Sorry, honey, I crashed the first plane. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. Hopefully this isn't a metaphor yeah. for our marriage. <laughs> there actually was a third I didn't include because I was fast forwarding through some of it. So he got upgraded, I think, to a different P-51 chassis. And so there were actually three uh, glamorous Glenn, Glennis. Are any of these in museums? I don't know about the P-51s. A later air craft craft that he flew is for okay. sure okay um so let's see he uh he got married stateside in 1945 after a short stint as a flight instructor at perrin field in texas he was assigned to the fighter section of the flight test division at Wright field in ohio he was as he tells it at the right place at the right time our hero was as you'll hear more later nothing if not a humble man I give more credit to being at the right place at the right time, and a lot of people do, because that, that either you either are or you aren't. There's that uh, <laughs> West Virginia drawl, yeah. as is made famous later. Wright Field was the center of Army Air Force research and development, and since it was his job to check out all aircraft coming and going out on maintenance, he got to fly almost every fighter on the flight line. Enter Colonel Albert Boyd. The colonel was chief of the flight test division. He was a tough bastard and absolutely unyielding in his standards. His goal was to build a group of test pilots that could set industry-wide standards for the profession. After observing the heroic pilot, Boyd handpicked him as one of the first for his flight test school. 
With only a high school education, however, he was admittedly challenged by the rigorous academics, but managed to graduate. Quote, because of my flying ability, they seemed to take mercy on my academics. Then, in June of 1947, Colonel Boyd made one of the most important decisions of his career when he chose one of his most junior test pilots to attempt one of the most important and revolutionary experimental flights ever achieved. He chose the young, heroic pilot because he considered him the best instinctive pilot he'd ever seen, and he had demonstrated an extraordinary capacity to remain calm and focused in a stressful situation. So keep in mind, he's not book smart, but the fact that he says this is the best instinct pilot I've ever seen in my entire career. Well, when you're talking about, I feel like piloting, especially back then where most of it's mechanical. Right. It's all about feel. Yeah. It just is. That and this guy has more experience than most of these guys on the tarmac. Right. His next mission, as we'd find out, would have plenty of stressful situations. The X-1 program, as it became known, would go on to see our hero become the first man to ever travel faster than the speed of sound, Chris. Years later, he went on to appear on the Dave Letterman show, where he recounts his story better than I ever could. I believe this is our first Brigadier General ever on this show, Chuck Yeager. I had trouble keeping hair out of my eyes while that animation, didn't it? Oh yes. Uh, this is even this. Now you broke the record and broke the speed of sound in 1947, and yeah. even today, this is a fascinating story. Uh, I know it's a long story, but briefly, how were you selected for the job? Well, I was a fighter pilot in World War II in Mustangs. I came back in 1945 from the war and was assigned to right field as a maintenance officer in the fighter test section. And I went through the test pilot school in 1946, and then I was selected for the X-1 program in the summer of 47 after the Bell test pilots had gotten into a hassle on bonus money and, uh, and probably because of my maintenance background and, and the air shows I used to put on. Now you mentioned money. What was the fee being paid to break the speed of sound here? Well, mostly the Bell test pilots had a fa two phases. First phase one, he took the airplane to .8 Mach number and 40,000 feet. That was worth about 50,000. And then to take it to 1.1 was worth about 150000 bucks. But he wanted it paid over a five-year period. You couldn't blame the guy. Yeah, now what, did, you didn't get the same kind of deal, though, did you? No. Uh, <laughs> no, I, we, we were Air Force test pilots, and uh, we worked, did it because we wanted to and liked to. And I think I was paid about 245 a month, which was okay. So. <laughs> um, now, this is, uh, it, it's hard to imagine because it's, it's old hat now. What Describe the aircraft. Was it just well, a, a rocket with wings? Yeah, the Bell X-1 you saw. Incidentally, what you saw on the film is the only time that the X-1 made a ground takeoff. All the other times it was dropped from a B-29 mothership, and the reason was we only had two and a half minutes of power with the rocket engine mm -hmm. under full power. Yeah. So they took us up to around 12,000 feet, and you got on a ladder and came into the X-1 and got hooked up, and they locked the door on, and then they took you up to 25,000 feet and then dove the B-29 up above 240 indicated and dropped you out. Then you ignited your rockets and, and went on out to the Mach numbers that you were aiming for that day. Mach, of course, being, being the sound Mach barrier. Mach 1 is the speed of sound. Named for whom? A Dr. Mach, an Austrian. What are you trying to do, test me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dr. Yeah. Mach was an Austrian who discovered that the speed of sound changes with altitude. Mm -hmm. Here at sea level, is around 760 miles an hour. 
at 36,000 feet, it's around 660. Now, you were, you were a kid at the time, 24 years old. So. Well, it's a matter of opinion. So. Uh, well, uh, chronologically speaking. Now, what, uh, it was a real mysterious barrier, wasn't it? We had never had an airplane into the region of the speed of sound, and, and where I, as a fighter pilot, where were two fighting Germans, anytime you got in a dogfight, say at 36 or 38,000 feet, you'd end up in a dive after a guy, and you would get our Mustangs up to about 80% of the speed of sound, and the shock waves would form on them, and you run into buffeting and lose control of your airplane. And the X-1 was really designed in 1943 and built in 44 to find out what was causing all of this. Mm -hmm. And we had never had an airplane in the region of the speed of sound, but the X-1 was built strong enough and had rocket thrust. And the secret behind the X-1 was that it, it was designed with a flying tail. And it was classified almost for a year after we did it. And the reason was we didn't know, want anyone to know how we'd gotten the airplane up above Mach 1. Mm -hmm. and it, to tell you, Dave, how it really pays off, during the Korean War, we were shooting down about 12 MiGs for every F-86 we lost, and later on, a guy defected with a MiG-15, and I went over and tested the airplane, and it had a fixed horizontal stabilizer, whereas the F-86 had a flying, the, the flying tail. tail. We had found that out with the X-1. Yeah. That pays off. I don't know what the flying tail is, but it's, well, a, it's a great story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, quite a tail, incidentally. Uh -huh. so. uh, the, I, well, we, you want to tell them what the, that would probably take blueprints and all sorts of things to explain a flying tail. No, it? the old airplanes had a fixed horizontal stabilizer with an elevator That's on it. That's the wing in the back, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah okay. the tail in the back. <laughs> tail in the back. <laughs> and had an elevator on it. Well, with the X-1, Changed the angle of incidence yeah. of the whole tail plane. I see. That's a flying tail. So that was part of the reason you were successful. Yeah. Now, some folks ahead of you were not quite so successful, and uh, we'll continue talking with Brigadier General Chuck Yeager about that right after. Now, before we get too much further, let's take a break here and talk about our sponsor, Olberg Car Care. Olberg is your source of professional detailing compounds and supplies that is research tested and developed by professional detailers themselves. These are the guys that are actually passionate about detailing and know firsthand what makes a good product. And they truly are great products. I love it. it's a simple, foolproof, two-step system, easy, and gives an amazing finish. And right now, they're offering a whopping 20% off your order when you use the code OVERCREST. The discount code is good not only on OBERCCARCARE.com, but also on DetailedImage.com and CarSuppliesWarehouse.com. Please go check them out today. Uh, Brigadier General Chuck Yeager is here, the man who broke the speed of sound. The others attempted before you, and uh, there were not uh, some bad results, weren't there? Well, basically, uh, David, uh, the British and the DH-108 at the Havilland Swalla were doing some work in the region of about 90% of the speed of sound, and they uh, busted up a couple airplanes, lost a couple coming pilots apart. coming yeah. apart. Yeah, because they did all of their work in vertical dives because they didn't have the thrust that we had yeah. in the X-1. Most of the work that I did in the X-1 was in a slight climb somewhere around 40, 45,000 feet. But. Is there, uh, the story true about you breaking the sound barrier with broken ribs? Yeah. Now, explain that, and, and why would they let that take place? Uh, well, basically, when we were at Miroc Air Base back in 1947, we were pretty well on our own, just myself, Bob Hoover, and Jack Ridley, a team that was flying the X-1, of course, the B-29 crew, too. And on a Sunday night, I took my wife out to Poncho's, which was a local watering, a bar, right? watering yeah. hole near Miroc Air Base, and we were boozing it up. And <laughs> so we went riding on horses later that night, and I was out racing with my wife, and somebody closed the gate that we had come out of. <laughs> and, and I saw it, laid my horse over, and it didn't respond like airplanes do. Yeah. And uh, so I hit the fence and flipped and broke a couple, couple ribs. And then on Tuesday, I was to fly the X-1, but 
it really was no problem. Once I got in the X1, they got the door locked on the side. Then you're okay, but... Mm -hmm. uh, you had to use a broom handle or something to well, wedge yourself in? Or? the door was hard to close, and my ribs were busted on the right. And old Jack Ridley gave me a broom handle about that long to give me a mechanical advantage, and I could do it with my left yeah. arm. But that's the way it goes. So you, you test pilots lead a pretty rigorous training program <laughs> on your, for a big... Uh, now, sure. when, when you finally did yeah. it, was there a sensation that you perceived different? Nah, never replace sex. <laughs> I'm sure that was the question. What's uh, no, going wrong here? Huh? When you're doing, when you're so doing that was that the purpose of the experiment, <laughs> huh? When you're doing that sort of thing, it you know you're so intense in in watching what's going on that you don't give any thought to the outcome. And uh, basically, when we got the airplane up above Mach one, it was a a feeling of achievement, sure, mm -hmm. but no big deal. Did it handle any differently? Oh, was yeah, there any sure. Sort of See, we ran into buffeting at about 88% of the speed of sound. Then we lost the ability to control the airplane at mm -hmm. about 9.3. And well, that's, that's fine. Where, Good heavens. That's where we took a hard look at, at the horizontal stabilizer <laughs> and then used it uh -huh. as a flying tail. Yeah. And we controlled it on through Mach 1. And then as the airplane went supersonic, and we got a supersonic back flow with the whole airplane. All the buffeting smoothed out, yeah. and we got our elevators back then. Um, any, uh, Tom Wolf in the book, uh, The Right Stuff, says that you and your voice have uh, been the pattern and the uh, speech uh, mannerisms for commercial and uh, military air pilots in the United States. Is that? Well, I, yeah, I came out of West Virginia, and I did have quite a draw for a long time, but I... <laughs> I learned to speak differently, obviously. You can tell. But do you believe, <laughs> but do you believe that commercial pilots today are talking like you talk? Well, I, just, I don't know. It's a matter of opinion. So. Uh -huh. it's, I've noticed it when people get on the uh, PA and start you talking. You mean they have an emergency every time you No, no, on? not an emergency, <laughs> but just, you know, pointing out things. And, uh, yeah, like, they, yeah, well, it's, it's calming. It is. Know? It's very soothing to know and that. And to their own self, too. Um, uh, you've had, as a test pilot, you must have had some close calls. Are there any that come to mind at this point? Well, yeah, you get, sure, when you, you stick your neck out, you get bit every once in a while. I, I got shot down in World War II. I lost a tail off a of P-39 in training, and then... Then in NF-104, I ended up getting burned in a pressure suit when I ended up about 108,000 feet and got in a flat spin and ejected out. So. Now, you're so casual about describing that that I think that's probably not a bad idea, you know, the way you say that. But you, now you said 108,000 yeah, feet. Yeah, we had an, a rocket-boosted 104 that when I was running the astronaut school, we were training the guys, we were getting them above, well, giving them about 70 seconds of zero G in a full pressure suit with reaction control, sidearm control, attitude controllers mm -hmm. like was on the Mercury, Gemini, and capsule, and the shuttle. I'm gone again. I don't know what <laughs> that is. But, uh, uh, just attitude controllers in space. Yeah. And uh, we could give them that experience cheaply. And I was doing the test work on the airplane. I was commandant of the school and uh, ended up trying to establish where we would run into problems. And then we got bit in a hurry. Yeah. And, uh, and when I ejected in a flat spin, then the seat hit me in the damn face, and I got on fire. Ooh, ooh, it ruined your whole day. Now that wasn't. <laughs> uh, it's a thrill to meet you, uh, General. Thank you very much for your time. Okay, Chuck yeah. Yeager, ladies and gentlemen. I think my wife is probably online right now looking for an attitude controller. <laughs> <laughs> so, Chris, that interview was from 1982, which was 35 years after. Chuck Yeager broke through the sound barrier. But again, that was such a cool interview I found of him telling the story that I just, I had to did put you, that in there. Did you look at the science of breaking the sound barrier at all? What's involved in why, what is it that's causing the turbulence, the buffing, the, why was it so all, hard to do? It's all the shockwaves. 
and I get into it a little bit, but feel free to interject because I didn't get deep shockwaves into from it. what exactly. So as you approach, okay, here's a good example. Um, the um, can't remember the effect when you hear a siren go by. Doppler effect. Thank you. The Doppler effect. Do you know what that is? Because that is actually the sound waves. Yes compressing in front of it because it's moving into itself, right? Right, And then on the rear, it sounds lower because you're expanding the sound waves. That's why you hear it as an ambulance goes by because they're traveling fast, presumably. So we have to talk a little bit about how sound travels in the first place. I suppose we do. It is simply a vibration or waves of amplitude going through the air. And as the, uh, Chuck alluded to- The molecules of the air. Correct. Essentially. Well, Transferring or, or from any- medium, right? That's why you can right. hear underwater. It's you literally can hear going from glass. one molecule to another molecule to another molecule. It's vibrating or a pressure wave. It's, right. Think of it essentially as pressure waves, which makes sense for basically what we're getting into. So the quicker or the closer you get to just how fast those pressure waves are moving, they stack. They basically stack up on themselves. Now, it's not that they're actually stacking, but by the time one travels, you're already upon it again. So are we talking about the sound that the plane itself is making? It's not even necessarily has to do with the sound at all. It's just the fact that think of this is how fast this medium can move. Doesn't matter what you're trying to move through it. Sound happens to be vibrations and waves trying to move through this medium. Right. However, that is simply the speed at which it can transmit any sort of vibration. Okay. Think of it that way. Sure. So as you're approaching it and it starts vibrating, you're basically coming across these sound or pressure waves on the, top of the each other. Frequency of yep. The frequency of which you encounter them is becoming higher yes. and higher. So rather than maybe you hear a wave every once in a while, as you approach it... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it basically, and you, be, you sudden, start to enter you, the resonant frequency exactly. of whatever it is that that's you're flying. my dumbed-down understanding and explanation okay. of it. And okay. that's why as you approach it, it got worse and worse. And then as soon as you went beyond, you're not in, you're not behind or in front of those stacked waves. You're in front of those stacked right, waves right, now. Right. So since the days of aerial combat in World War II, pilots had experienced unstable controls and terrific structural mishaps when their aircraft reached the speed approaching the speed of sound. This is ironically what we were just talking about. I didn't yes. realize this is where my notes went. <laughs> it was theorized by many engineers that a physical barrier actually existed that would prevent flight beyond Mach 1. Like what, the so, hand of God? Well, they we... understood it, but they thought, okay, well, how about when you get to the point where all were these waves- Were they thinking it was like some sort of crazy theory of relativity where nothing can travel faster than the speed of light? That this yes. also existed for They sound? kind of did, but I think more on a layman's understanding, at least. I think they thought when these waves, because they understand how sound and waves travel through media, I think my presumption is their concern was when you get to the point where all of these pressure waves are stacking on each other at the exact same moment, there's no way to get through that force, right? That was their thought. Um, yet... An argument remained by other engineers that there were things that did fly faster than the speed of sound, like bullets, right? Bullets are supersonic. Bell Aircraft, therefore, started with the shape of a 50 caliber bullet. They then designed the X-1 as a 50 caliber bullet, enlarged, and added wings. <laughs> this was designed specifically to break the so-called sound barrier. So, the small plane... Are they assuming that bullets are breaking the sound barrier. So they know it's theoretically possible yeah. because- uh, It was more about, I guess, the control at that point, or I, I don't know. Some people thought you would hit a brick wall right. once you hit the speed of sound. Others thought somehow you would lose your hearing or everything would they, go they, silent. They or, had to have known that it was possible because if you shoot a gun 
at something 500 yards away and it hits the target, you hear the report later. They had to have known that it was possible, but they just didn't know why they couldn't do it with their own propulsion. I think it's, okay, on, on paper, these guys know it's possible, but in practice, no one's done it, and the closer and closer you get, all of a sudden everything starts vibrating and right. buffeting and going crazy. So there's some disconnect that they don't know. That's literally why they built this, to try to figure it out. Right, and I just imagine the guys Chuck was talking about that were just dive-bombing because they didn't have enough horsepower. They didn't the have enough engines. power, so they're just like, all right, dive. Straight down. Yep, and if you make the shape aerodynamic enough and slippery enough, your terminal velocity will be high enough where you could, in theory, reach Mach 1. Terrifying. That is terrifying. So the Bell X1 we've mentioned, you can picture it. If you don't, you can look it up, but it is the bright orange missile looking I, thing. I have seen this plane. In person. Yes. It is at the- Smithsonian. What, Smithsonian, yes. yes the Air Hanging Space from Museum, the ceiling. Which is the, the best museum I have ever been to. The really? Smithsonian Air and Space Museum is amazing. It is absolutely incredible. There's so much cool stuff there. If you have not been there, you, you need to go there. So the small plane was powered by four powerful rocket engines and was structurally very sound. So it's not prop- powered. It's not, you know, internal combustion engine. It's not jet powered. It is rockets. It so was, it's, it's a solid fuel rocket, basically. Liquid fuel. It's a liquid fuel rocket. <laughs> they just fill it up and just light it you'll, off. And... You'll hear a little bit about okay. how they fuel this thing. Um, it was built to withstand 18 times the force of gravity. So it is very strong. Bell was testing the aircraft at Maroc in early 1947 when a disagreement with their pilot, Chalmers Slick Goodlin, caused the Air Corps to take notice. Goodlin demanded huge amounts of bonus money, as Chuck explained a little bit with uh, Letterman, for taking an aircraft through Mach 1, and Bell had put the project on hold while they tried to resolve this issue, right? You're in contract negotiations, of all things, trying to break the sound barrier. Well, Colonel Boyd saw the tremendous potential such a program would have on the future Air Corps and successful lobbied to get the entire X-1 program under his command and in the military. Screw you, private sector and Bell. We're taking this over. We're not waiting for contract negotiations. We're going to put this plane right next to our $20,000 toilets. <laughs> <laughs> when Jaeger was selected to fly the craft, he once again christened the plane Glamorous Glennis. Th there was no number after this one. This was like, Just right, everything this is was... Glamorous Glennis. Yeah. yeah. After three test glides, the X-1 flew its first powered flight to a speed of 0.85 Mach. He encountered severe buffeting, and sudden nose-up and nose-down trim changes during his next six flights. Then, during his eighth flight on a, the 10th of October, he lost pitch control altogether as a shockwave formed along the hinge line of the aircraft's elevator. So my presumption and description is accurate, or at least fits the story here. Uh, the X-1 had been designed with a moving horizontal tail, and as Jaeger described in the interview, it was Captain Jack Ridley that convinced Jaeger that by changing its angle of incidence in small increments, he controlled the craft without having to rely on the elevator. Okay, so let me, this is a very visual thing. Okay. So you think of the rear wing of a plane. Yep, it's got little... And on the back of it, I always thought they were little flaps. They're yeah. actually controlled elevators because they control the elevation of the plane, right? So yep. it's the little flap on the back of the wing that controls it. Correct. What this is talking about is we can't control this little flappy 
hinge area. Okay. Instead, the entire rear wing oh, okay. rotates or okay. pivots on its axis. Now your whole entire rear wing surface is the flapper elevator, okay. right? And by moving that very, very slowly or in slight increments, they can do the same thing elevators would. But I think because it's a larger surface or something about the hinging effect, right. it wasn't affected as much by the buffeting. This had never been attempted at extremely high speeds, but Jaeger was game to give it a try on the next flight. The eighth powered flight followed the same plan as the one before. Chuck tested the horizontal stabilizer control at 0.96 Mach, and Ridley was right. The system worked, and Chuck was able to regain control of the X-1. The next flight would come after the weekend, and plans called for taking the X-1 out to 0.98 Mach. But... So they're not trying to break the sound barrier. They're yet. they're incrementally. They're yes, they're incrementally okay. they're going further and further and figuring out what's going wrong, what they can try to fix. So they're now trying to go to point 0.98. So they're doing it in steps. But at what point does Chuck just go? What time what point does he just send it? You know what I mean? Just yeah. the next time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but not before that evening that Chuck told us about when Hin and Glennis, his wife, took out to Poncho's, had too many drinks, and decided to take out a couple of Poncho's horses. He left out that it was the bar owner's own horses <laughs> out racing, and then back to the barn with the closed gate, and he went flying right over the gate. He broke two ribs when he hit the ground. They basically called it his worst crash ever because he never injured himself during crashes. Except for breaking his back. Oh, right. Okay, then that... that, that misnomer is wrong yeah yeah obviously yeah, yeah, okay yeah. but anyways broke two ribs he knew colonel boyd would never allow him to fly with broken ribs but remember that's the hard he probably guy. didn't tell anybody except for his buddy that gave him a broomstick to shut the door well chuck wasn't about to let the injury keep him out of the cockpit glennis drove him to a doctor's office off base across town uh -huh. to get his ribs taped up chuck knew that he could fly with his broken ribs, but he wasn't sure how he's going to close the latch of the X-1 side door, which had to be pulled into place and then latched from the side. It was presumably very heavy as well, seeing as how this thing was made to stand 18 Gs. He said as much to his buddy Ridley, who fashioned a makeshift handle out of a broomstick. The morning of 14th of October saw the X-1 team ready for another flight. Cracking the sound barrier in the X-1 marked another milestone in aviation history. The time, October 14, 1947. The place, Air Force Flight Test Center at Muroc, California. The pilot, Captain Chuck Yeager. Captain Yeager was selected to test the top performance of this rocket-propelled research vehicle. He found it to be a sleek and sturdy aircraft designed by Bell to fly faster than the speed of sound. The X-1 holds 5,020 pounds of fuel, nearly one-half of its total weight when launched. The delicate process of fueling takes one hour. It's like me at dinner. The rocket engine propellant is made up of liquid oxygen and water alcohol, the latter being pressurized by gaseous nitrogen. Great caution must be exercised during the fueling operation since the fuel system in the X-1 has an explosive potential equal to that of its own weight in TNT. In the rocket blast, sonic beads can be seen during this test firing of the engine. 
A special electrical igniter is used in the combustion chambers to fire the rockets. With all four rocket tubes firing, the X-1 will produce a thrust of 6,000 pounds. The engine occupies a space 19 inches in diameter by 56 inches long and weighs but 210 pounds. A special pit has been constructed into which the X-1 is lowered for loading into the B-29 mothership. This bomber has been specially modified for aerial launchings of one. Due to close clearances, the loading procedure takes a considerable amount of time. The X-1 is suspended by fabric straps with cable holders. Testing and preparation, the X-1 becomes airborne on its first attempt to exceed the speed of sound. First of all, I love those old-timey clips. That They're was great. from 1947 when this happened. That's awesome. So Chuck climbed into the X-1, nestled into the bomb bay of the B-29. They basically took a big B-29 bomber, Gutted retrofitted it. its bomb bay area, and made this thing where it'll nestle up into it. And then he has to get in this little, like, cable rickety elevator thing from the cockpit yep. and, like, roll himself down to the rocket ship from, in the mothership. From the mothership. Yes, yeah. thank you. <laughs> and then get in and then use his hidden broomstick to close it because he can't even do that himself. Right. He latched the door with the broomstick and settled in. At .94 Mach, he corrected for the plane's instability. We're, you're missing a very important factor that the, the, the bomber got him started by diving. Oh, yeah. I <laughs> it's, right. I forgot we didn't even talk about the actual procedure here. So yeah, they, the thing that... The thing that <laughs> not only is Chuck a badass, but this guy flying this big... The B-29 bomber. Straight down to get, right. up, get him so a little head start. So they got the B-29 bomber of all its bomb bay area and it's nestled be like this thing you, up in push there. It, push starting my car after we leave the <laughs> podcast today. <laughs> How is that like it? <laughs> because you're giving me a push. You're getting oh, me going. okay, yeah. Because and then I'll okay. fire up the so engine. So the, the B twenty nine gets to its maximum altitude. It's the ceiling. It's operating the ceiling, ceiling yeah. right? And then goes into a nosedive to basically go as fast as it can in this giant bomber. Yeah, give him a head start. Yeah. Then Chuck goes back from the cockpit in this little rickety elevator thing they showed in that old timey video. It's like a cable operated <laughs> basket that he lowers himself into. And the greatest part about this video, you can find it at YouTube. He gets to a point and they're filming and it kind of gets stuck. So he hops up and down and keeps going down. It's like, oh my goodness. And then he gets in there and gets his little hidden secret broomstick handle, shut the door and off he goes. They drop as this B-29 has reached, I assume close to its terminal velocity in a dive. They drop the X-1 and then it writes its rockets and it actually ascends at a 30 degree angle. Right. Because the higher you get, the less drag there yeah, is and also the lower the speed of sound. Right, because there's less air density. Exactly. At 0.94 Mach, he corrected and for the planes. That is why they used a rocket engine, because it doesn't need any right, air. It has it's, its not own a turbine. liquid oxygen. Yeah, yeah. Which, did you hear that it is equal to its own weight in TNT I did. as far as explosive power? <laughs> I did. The thing is just all fuel. It's that half is fuel. all it is. Yeah. So at 0.94 Mach, Chris, he corrected for the plane's instability using the horizontal stabilizer trim Is this switch. the first time that he's been trying these, or is this like No, the he tried time? it the, the previous time when they went to point okay, yeah, Mach yeah. 
Point nine, nine six, yeah. I think. So this is the second So they go basically, around. like, you're controlling normally, and then it sounds like there's a switch where it goes from elevator control to the full uh, wing control. Sure. Or what did he call it in the interview? Something else. Anyways, uh, Horizoner stabilizer there. Now, with fuel remaining, he fired another of the X-1's rockets. I didn't realize at point nine nine four, he's not even using all of the rockets. No, there's four. Right. Yeah. Okay, so all of a sudden he lights up another one of the rockets and watched the Mach meter. The Mach meter. I, I need that. a Mach meter. I love it. I absolutely love it. So how are they measuring this? So there are guys with radar down on the ground, and he also has some sort of Mach, Mach, Mach meter. I don't know what a Mach meter. It has to be wind or like pressure. It has to be something like that, yeah. I don't know. Um, but anyways, he's watching his Mach meter, and at point nine six five, it's apparently a very accurate Mach meter as well. At point nine six five, well, it has to be. Otherwise, what's the point if we can't measure it? <laughs> at point nine six five, Chris, the meter fluctuated and went off the scale. The ground control operators simultaneously reported they heard what they thought was thunder in the distance. In fact, they had heard the first sonic boom ever produced. When the mock needle registered off the scale, Chuck noticed that the X-1 no longer buffeted and supersonic flight was as smooth as could be. As we talked about, you surpass the stacked pressure waves and get in front of it. He left the airplane in this newly entered realm for 20 seconds. He's going above Mach 1. Then turned off two of the four rocket chambers and decelerated back to subsonic speed. With all four rockets firing, Jaeger climbs to 56,000 feet in less than two minutes. And he does it. The first human to crack the sound barrier. Now with propellant exhausted, Jaeger reduces his speed and altitude to come in for a dead stick landing at 160 miles per hour. At this hot landing speed, the X-1 rolls for more than two and one half miles. So is a dead stick mean there's no propulsion when you're landing, right? It just means you're gliding down. My understanding of dead stick, though, is you reach the speed where it's almost at stall. Right. For the airframe. So you basically, when you, it feels like you're stirring nothingness, right? right. On the control stick. Because you don't have much pressure on the control surfaces. I took pilot lessons for one day, Chris. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Quote, after all the anticipation to achieve this moment, it really was a letdown. General Yeager later wrote in his memoir, there should have been a bump in the road, something to let you know you just punched a nice, clean hole through the sonic barrier. And he doesn't hear the, the sonic boom because it's behind him. He's going right. faster than the right. sonic boom can exist. Instead, the unknown was like a poke through jello. That's his <laughs> quote from his memoir, and it kind of stuck. You'll read that yeah. sometimes. While his flights in the X-1 guaranteed celebrity, it was Jaeger's performance over the next seven years that earned him his status as a true legend. Jaeger has called these years his golden age of flying and fun. It was an age when the limits of time, space, and the imagination were being dramatically expanded. A whole stable of exotic research aircraft were probing the unknowns of flight. And Jaeger became the test pilot of choice among engineers because he flew with such extraordinary precision that his data points were always right on the mark. He also demonstrated an unrivaled ability to quickly ferret out and understand an airplane's flaws. This goes back 
to his aptitude as a young kid and just basically knowing how machines work, how he can fix them, what's wrong. And then, of course, all his years being uh, basically the mechanic for a lot of these planes. And feeling the mistakes and feeling the, the things that happen wrong. It's just like when I, this is a really, really diluted example, <laughs> but I would always take uh, my bride out in the snow and be like, okay, get the car sideways. Yep. You need. You will never know how to gain control of a car. You're right, when unless you've experienced Unless it. you've experienced when it is out of control. And I think that is what makes a test pilot is people that take things to the absolute edge, find out where that is, pass it, and then they can use that as a benchmark for future testing. That is a great segue. Because of Jaeger's basically expertise in this, he was selected to evaluate the first Russian MiG-15 to come into American hands. Jaeger considered this, quote, the most demanding assignment he had faced up to that point in time. So what, did they pull this thing out of a shipping container that said Maersk on it or something, or what? <laughs> Under an... And, and, <laughs> yes, yes. Under an extremely tight schedule, in wretched weather, he had to ring out what he called a, quote, flying booby trap, an unforgiving craft susceptible to unexpected pitch-ups, fatal spins, and a host of other problems. Nonetheless... He took the fighter up to more than 55,000 feet, and despite the fact that he knew he'd lose elevator control, subsequently put into a near-vertical dive to achieve its .98 maximum Mach speed. What a piece of junk. The test confirmed <laughs> that the F-86, while a superior fighter overall, the MiG had the advantage in terms of rate of climb, higher ceiling, and better acceleration. General Boyd later reported, quote, the flight tests of the Russian MiG really demonstrated what Chut Yeager was made of. It was an extremely dangerous work, flying in horrible weather. Because of him, we now know more about this airplane than the Russians do. So the U.S. gets their hand on a stolen MiG, throw Yeager in How do you steal it. a MiG? How do you it steal a MiG? It was a defector. Oh, like we just like flew it over and was like, here Basically, you go. Basically, it was my Wow. Yeah. I want to talk to that guy. Right? Yeah. Um, we know who that was? <laughs> I'm sure I could look it up. I didn't want to go on that big of a tangent because it's already a long episode. I want to know who that guy but is. Here's here's the takeaway from this, Chris. The U.S. gets their hand on a MiG throw Jaeger in it, and he is able to basically push the thing harder than the Russians even knew it was capable of doing. That's why they said, we know more about this airplane than the Russians even do. It's incredible. In 1954 then, Jaeger returned to operational flying as he took over command of the 417th Fighter Bomber Squadron. His unit transitioned from air defense to a tactical nuclear mission when under his command in France. So it's basically start of the Cold War. We have nuclear capability. Instead of these guys being defensive bombers, we're going to be tactical nuclear mission ready. Now, keep in mind, Chris, Jaeger always considered himself, first and foremost, to be a fighter pilot. And his dogfighting skills remained sharp. So he's over in Europe. People know the name Jaeger now. He's it's, a, gaining, it's a household name. He's worldwide. gaining some celebrity, right? This is the time. Like, what, what happens now? What are we doing now in society? I mean, we've got what SpaceX is doing, which is really cool. That is rockets, cool. But those are things that are happening, right? Not they're not, they're not like an, indiv an individual accomplishment. A and badass. I, and I don't want to not give credence to engineers that make this stuff possible right. because it is a massive accomplishment to make any of this possible. Um, but I don't think we're going to have any real individual pioneers until we start sending people to Mars again, because we're going to, I mean, the, that's true in, in the next five years or so, I know they're planning on sending the, uh, another rocket out to Mars unmanned 
that's supposed to, it'll be the first. Yeah, test. Elon Musk had some crazy goal of like in the 2020s, we're going to be on Mars. And uh, I think that's the next human endeavor. I can see that. Because we've kind of stagnated since we got to the moon in terms of advancing human endeavors. I think that was really the pinnacle of human success is getting the moon and putting a flag there. I mean, that was a pretty big deal. I would agree. And since then, I mean, I haven't really seen a lot that's really been I know inspiring from an individual standpoint like that. Like, who have we had other than... Uh, this is probably a discussion for the end of the podcast, but we've had like Chuck Yeager and Neil Armstrong and these guys that are just like these monoliths of of individual and personal accomplishment. And, right. and uh, it's, it's I'm trying to think who is that person now, and I can't, I can't think of anybody. I can't either, and I think it's going to be a while until you find someone to that stature. Maybe never. Right. Regardless, Jaeger is a known name, a known person, and he goes over to Europe now where he's stationed working on these tactical bombers, tactical nuclear bombers, and all of these young European, like, hot shots who think they're good fighter pilots and dogfighters, they want to go head-to-head with Jaeger. <laughs> and so think of, like, the movie Top Gun where it's, it's all, like, friendly yeah. uh, exercises, right? And so... One of the squadron pilots recalled that when he arrived, quote, there was a hell of a line of eager young pilots anxious to jump on our new squadron commander and see what he was made of. Testing Jaeger turned out to be a massacre. He waxed everybody <laughs> and with such ease, it was shameful. And we're talking he's... He's older. 40? He hasn't 45? been in active duty for years probably right. decades right he's doing a lot of the test pilot stuff and here he comes to europe all these hot shots like all right well let's get up in the sky man old man yeah and he just demolishes them <laughs> i yeah it's just it i'm laughing at imagining that jaeger returned to edwards air force base as a colonel deputy director of flight and test in 1961 then the following year he took over as commander of the new usaf Aerospace Research Pilot School, where he presided over the development of a first-of-its-kind institution designed to prepare the U.S. military test pilots for spaceflight. The excellence of the training provided during the school's 10 years of operation can be proven by the simple fact that 37 graduates were then selected for U.S. spaceflight in the space program, 26 of which earned their astronauts' wings by flying in the Gemini, Apollo, and space shuttle programs. So here he is basically building this program over the next 10 years to basically get these guys ready. And I'm not going to... Uh, let me just get to it here because this is all portrayed in a book and a movie and a series. Yeah. And this is kind of... Some say this is more of an accomplishment than breaking through the sound barrier. So... Well, are you saying that going to space is a bigger accomplishment no, than the No, him making this program that uh -huh. trained astronauts. Is it, are you talking about the right stuff? Exactly. That is a great... It's on uh, It's on Netflix or something. Or I Amazon. started watching it. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's not like as a movie, it's okay. You know, it's it's super interesting, but it's right. not a great movie. Well, but as, a, as an expose of what happened, it's really good. Yeah. So although Jaeger himself never got a chance to fly in space, his role as mentor to a whole generation of spaceflight pioneers... That's what I'm talking about. He made an important contribution to its exploration overall. It remains one of his personally proudest achievements. Chuck Yeager's accomplishments and contributions to spaceflight were immortalized in the 1979 book, The Right Stuff, by Tom Wolfe. The book was then adapted by director Philip Kaufman into the 1983 movie by the same name. 
I just felt that uh, the book uh, and the right stuff uh, essentially uh, trace their origins from uh, uh, a man who had what Tom called the right stuff, uh, and that was Chuck Yeager. He was a man who not only did it, but uh, talked about it in his own way, in his own style, and uh, uh, you know, lived dangerously and with a sense of humor. So that was actually Philip Kaufman, the director and producer at the movie, kind of talking about what he thought of Jaeger and why he made the book into a movie. However, it's funny to hear Jaeger himself, how he had a different view on it. They talk about the right stuff. Well, you know, uh, it really don't mean a lot to guys like us because flight testing or research flying, is, it's a way of life with you. And that's your job and you do it a lot. Uh, there's a lot of luck involved. And, uh, and if you survive, you survive. If you don't, you don't. Talk about just like if you survive, calm. you survive. If you don't, you don't. Just humility and just calm. Now, had you ever seen the movie from '83? The right it's stuff. A long time ago. Yeah, yeah, I feel like I've seen this movie years ago because what I remember was all the skepticism of if a person could even survive exceeding the speed of sound. When Chuck Yeager went through the sound barrier, people thought that their your ears would fall off. They did not know if there was a beyond beyond the sound barrier. Whole sequence having to do with your breaking the sound barrier is that was no, that nostalgic? Very, very well done. Yeah. Was that nostalgic to you? Yeah. You don't look at it that way. Guys like us, you do. You know, you always look ahead. You don't look back on something like that unless you're learning something. You mean for this space race, you don't want our best pilots? I didn't say that. Look carefully in the film, and there's Jaeger lurking around as Fred the bartender. <laughs> Y'all want to drink whiskey? <coughs> no, thanks, Fred. Just a little coffee. But his most important role was as chief technical consultant to the movie. I just want to make sure that it was done accurately and documented in the <clears throat> same way with the, the book and the whole movie with a sense of humor like it has. And I think it'd be, uh, it's, it's pretty educational, really. It tells it the way it was. I'm going to have to grab the book, I think. Yeah, and I want to go back and watch the 83 movie just for his one line as Frank the bartender. <laughs> hey, y'all want some whiskey? <laughs> so after serving as head of aerospace safety for the Air Force, Jaeger then retired as a brigadier general in 1975. His decorations include, I have to take a big breath here. Okay. Distinguished Service Medal, the Silver Star, the Legion of Merit, the Distinguished Flying Cross, and the Bronze Star. He then received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian award, from President Ronald Reagan in 1985. He then went on to fly F-15 fighter jets, breaking the sound barrier again on the 50th and subsequently 55th anniversary of his pioneering flight. He was, okay, so 55 years from 47 and he was already 24. So 24 plus, he was like, what, Almost 80? 80? Yeah. Doing it by, like he was flying the F-15 by himself at 80 years old and just poof, there goes the sound barrier again. He then did another uh, as a passenger on an F-15 for the 65th anniversary because he was 90 and the Air Force probably didn't want him behind the stick of the F-15. FBF-15, but he did another sound barrier run as a passenger, which is really cool. And what an honor the pilot was. The pilot. Can you imagine being there with Chuck Yeager and you oh. get to take him? That's awesome. 
for what an honor. unfortunately what was his last ride to beat the sound barrier. And just days ago, unfortunately, General Charles Elwood Yeager passed away at the age of 97. He will always remain a hero and a legend with the utmost of humility. You don't have to be good to be a legend. All you got to do is live. That's about the way it stacks up.